Welcome to the St Emlyn's Podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Rick Boddy. Now, many of you will recognise Rick from his excellent blog post he's been writing for many years on the St Emlyn's site, and we've managed to persuade him to come along to the podcast on what I hope will be the first of many recordings. To ease him in gently, we thought we'd start with a subject with which he is undoubtedly a world expert and internationally renowned. So we're going to spend a couple of episodes talking about everybody's favourite cardiological topic, troponins. So Rick, I hope you don't mind if we go back to the very beginning of troponin and talk about some of the basics. And we're going to take us all the way through to the most up-to-date thinking to do with high-sensitivity troponins and how we can use them in ED. So I'll I'll warm you up gently. Let's start off with something pretty straightforward. Just remind us, what is troponin? Well, troponin is a protein, first of all, that might come as a surprise to some people who think it's a cardiac enzyme because we, we often talk about measuring cardiac enzymes. But actually, troponin is a protein and it's involved in muscle contraction. If you remember from your anatomy and physiology days, it's basically part of the contractile apparatus within the muscle cells. And troponin occurs as part of a complex together with tropomyosin. There are three types of troponin. There's troponin I, troponin T and troponin C. Together with tropomyosin, they're wrapped around the thin filaments, or actin, in muscle. When your muscles are at rest, the troponin-tropomyosin complex blocks the binding sites on the thin filaments so that myosin, that's the thick filament, can't bind to it and there's basically no movement. Then along comes an action potential and it stimulates some calcium release. The calcium binds to troponin C, which makes troponin I change shape and exposes the binding site on actin. Myosin binds to that, changes shape, and it propels the thick filament along the thin filament, meaning you get a muscle contraction. So just to confirm, troponin is present in all muscle. It's not just heart muscle. That's right. It's, it's present in both skeletal muscle and cardiac muscle. So there must be a difference in the type of troponin, is there, if we're able to pick up a difference that's cardiac specific? That's a really clever thing about troponin, is that they identified specific cardiac isoforms of troponin T and troponin I that they can target for detection and run a blood test to see if there's any myocardial damage. Uh, and that's what we pick up when we when we talk about troponin as a blood test. We're looking at cardiac troponin I and cardiac troponin T, which are very cardiac specific. So when are these troponin proteins released into the blood? Well, they're released when there is myocardial injury. And it's really important to recognise that it's myocardial injury and not specifically myocardial infarction, because any cause of myocardial injury will lead to troponin lease into the blood. So that could be, for example, um, a patient who has an acute myocardial infarction or a patient who has a particular stress on their system that causes them to damage the myocardium because of the demands that are placed on the body at the time. So any injury at all to the myocardium, even if that's a direct blow to the chest or pericarditis perhaps, will that cause troponin release? Absolutely. Any myocardial injury whatsoever, regardless of the etiology. And I'm sure that that's going to come back to us later in the episode where we think a bit more about how we pick it up and what the clinical significance is. Absolutely. And I think this is a key point because we'll undoubtedly start touching on the specificity of troponins, won't we? And when we talk about the specificity, we'll be talking about the specificity for the diagnosis of an acute myocardial infarction. But we're not necessarily talking about the cardio specificity of the, of the, of the protein uh, as a marker of myocardial injury. We know that cardiac troponin is very cardiac specific. It's, that's, that's how it's different to the, the previous generations of markers that we use today to diagnose an acute myocardial infarction, like CK, LDH and ALT. If you're old enough to remember those three enzymes, they were enzymes that we used to diagnose a myocardial infarction with. It used to take three days for those substances to rise in the blood. Uh, and based on the pattern of release, we'd decide whether a patient had an acute myocardial infarction. But of course, they weren't cardiac specific at all. LDH and ALT are liver function tests and CK 
UK, we now use more as a marker of rhabdomyolysis than acute myocardial infarction. So they weren't cardiac-specific markers. The beauty of troponin is, is that it's very cardiac-specific and there's very little crossover with skeletal muscle. When we think specifically about those cardiac parts of troponin as opposed to skeletal troponin, I think that's one of the things I've learned is that troponin actually comes from all muscle. Of course, physiology lectures are a long time ago for me and even that bit you had just then, I was getting hot sweats and a bit of PTSD about sitting in a medical school lecture theatre listening to those things about troponin and myosin and actin. But it is an all muscle, but the cardiac troponin, that's the thing that we're measuring. So we find that in the blood when there's any myocardial damage, these cardiac troponins, not just when there's myocardial infarction. When does that peak in the blood occur after the point of injury? So the best data we have on this is in, in the context of an acute myocardial infarction. And we know that it takes 12 to 24 hours for the levels to peak in the blood. And conversely after that, how long does it take for the troponin levels to fall? I'm assuming that it has to get metabolized somehow. Does it go through the renal system and get excreted that way? Yeah, it's, it's, it's excreted renally. And the length of time that it takes you to clear the troponin really depends on how good your renal function is, whether there's any ongoing release of troponin into the blood and how much damage there was in the first place. So if you've had a substantial myocardial infarction, for example, if you had a STEMI and you measure the troponin, it'd be really high. It might take a patient weeks to clear that troponin from their bloodstream. Whereas if you have a very, very small NSTEMI, for example, it could take a lot less time to clear that from your blood. It could be even cleared by the next day, for example. And I guess if we flip that round, if you have a small NSTEMI and you have renal failure, that may take longer to clear the troponin from your blood than if you have a larger infarct but normally functioning kidneys. Yeah, absolutely. And you need, so you need to take all of those things into account. How big might the infarcts have been? And, and you know, would we, how, how quick would you expect them to clear that level of troponin? How good is the renal function? And is there any ongoing myocardial injury that would cause ongoing troponin release? This brings us really nicely onto one of those, I don't know if it's a myth, maybe you can tell us, this idea about patients with renal failure and troponin not being a useful test in those patients. From what you're saying, I assume that's just that patients with renal failure won't be able to clear the troponin as effectively, but surely the test can still be useful. Yeah, absolutely. It's still the reference standard biomarker for diagnosing an acute MI, even in renal failure. I have a story that, that sticks in my mind of when I witnessed a doctor telling a nurse off for testing a troponin in a patient with renal failure, which was a really embarrassing conversation to witness because he was totally wrong. We should be using troponins in patients with renal failure, but we should be understanding that those patients are likely to have a high level at baseline. And when we know that, we can understand how to interpret that level. And we'll be more interested in the rise and or fall of troponin when we do serial testing than in an absolute level. So these patients who have renal function that isn't as perfect as we'd like it, they may just have a baseline level of troponin that's permanently not being able to be cleared from their blood. Doesn't always represent new myocardial injury. It must, I suppose, be myocardial injury at some point, but they're taking longer to clear it. But the test itself is still worthwhile. That's right, it's, it's still very worthwhile. So at baseline, these patients can have a very high troponin, can be surprisingly high troponin levels, actually at baseline, and apparently healthy people with chronic kidney disease. Of course, that's because they're not clearing troponin, but it's abnormal for them to get that level of troponin in the first place, and it has a prognostic significance for the patients. They have a worse long-term outcome. Whether it's an acute myocardial infarction or not, well, we don't know at baseline, just based on a single level. If the level appears to be what we might, might expect for somebody with a renal failure of that degree, then we'll need serial sampling before we can differentiate those with acute MI from those who just have a chronic elevation of troponin secondary to renal failure. Now when we talk about a lot of diseases I always find it easier to go back and think about the basic physiology if possible to then relate it to the 
illness itself. I wondered if we could do that the same, especially for the geeks out there, and I'm a bit geeky. Could you just tell us how one of these analyzers works? Because perhaps maybe if we understand how the analyzer works, that will help us understand a little bit where the tests come from and, and how we use the test. Yeah, so there's some really funky technology involved in doing a troponin test. And as emergency physicians, I guess we put the, the, the tubes in the chute, off they go to the lab, they work some magic, and we get a result. But actually, it's quite nice to understand how they, how they go about getting that result. So troponin assays are immunoassays. What that means is um, the clever people have identified parts of the troponin molecule that they can target with an antibody secure the antibody onto that part of the troponin molecule and then attach some kind of signal to that antibody. Maybe it emits some light. Uh, that's, for example, how we, uh, how we use the troponin T assay. We, um, we attach the antibody, we attach ruthenium uh, to the antibody and then we pass electricity through the complex and that causes any troponin or troponin-ruthenium complex to light up and we can measure how much light is uh, emitted to quantify the amount of troponin that's in that sample. That sounds like quite a big piece of kit, yet some of the troponin machines we have are sort of point of care testing. Do you lose some of the accuracy of your testing if you reduce down the complexity of your measuring equipment? Yes, totally. So they, they all work on the same principle. They're all immunoassays. But if you look at the lab-based technology, it's huge. It fills up the whole lab. You've got these massive analyzers. You get your sample, you plug it in at the beginning, you tell the computer what you want to do. It centrifuges your sample, takes off the serum, whizzes it round on the robotics. All these robotic arms spin around and add, uh, add antibodies and uh, there's this reaction and then you, you know, on the large computer at the end, you get your results. Trying to replicate that with a very small piece of kit that you can have at the bedside is of course going to be really, really challenging. And because of that, the technology, the point of care testing isn't quite as good as the lab technology and you don't get quite as sensitive or precise results. Are there differences in the different analyzers we use, whether you send off the bottle to the lab, as you describe, or whether you use a point-of-care test? There's some even uh, portable kits that people can use by the roadside now, aren't there? Yeah, well, I think some of those might be qualitative tests that simply you read like, a, like you would for a home pregnancy test. Is it positive or is it negative above a th certain threshold? There are handheld devices that you can use, like the um, Abitistat, Siemens Ultra. You can get a quantitative result uh, using a device that you can take to the patient's bedside. Potentially, you could even use a finger prick to get that result within 10 minutes or so. Those are fantastic pieces of kit. The sensitivity is not quite as good as lab technology, though. So whether we can actually use it to reassure people that they don't have an acute myocardial infarction, we don't yet know. And it's uh, unlikely with the current cartridges that we could rely on them um, as well as we can with the lab technology. You used a really important word there where you're talking about things and a word that we often perhaps use incorrectly with different circumstances. And that's one that's going to be important in our next episode. And that's sensitivity. Sensitivity, I understand from talking to you a bit more, is that not just the diagnostic sensitivity in the idea of sensitivity, specificity, positive predictive values. But in this sense, especially when we come to talk about high sensitivity troponin, we're actually talking about analytical sensitivity. So we've got to be a bit careful on how the words we use. So one of the most important things to recognise is it's not simply a question of troponin T versus troponin I. It's a question of the different assays because they all have different analytical characteristics. Uh, there's a really important point to be made here about the difference between analytical sensitivity and diagnostic sensitivity. Analytical sensitivity is about how low are the concentrations that we can reliably detect uh, using this troponin assay. 
And that's very different from diagnostic sensitivity, which is, of course, how many people with the condition that we're trying to diagnose will get a positive test. In terms of diagnostic sensitivity, a contemporary assay that isn't high sensitivity will, on average, have a sensitivity of about 80-85% when patients first arrive in the emergency department with a suspected acute MI. And the specificity of those contemporary assays will be somewhere in the 90s, so quite high. So doing what we used to call, or still call, a stat troponin can be very helpful for ruling in myocardial infarction. And so you get that positive test at the beginning, helps you with your decision making. A bit like an ECG is highly specific for myocardial infarction, but it wasn't sensitive enough to rule out. Now that must be why we then have to wait for that blood peak to occur to then do our rule out more sensitive, diagnostically sensitive test further down the line. Yeah, absolutely. So you might respond to a positive troponin using those contemporary assays because the specificity is pretty good. It's kind of similar to the specificity of a SG elevation or an ECG for STEMI, for example. When we use those older assays or contemporary assays that aren't high sensitivity, seeing a positive troponin was a significant event and we'd, we'd tend to label those patients with an acute myocardial infarction unless there was a good reason to do otherwise. But the sensitivity isn't there, is it? You know, you can't rule out a sensitivity of 80-85%. But we know that it'll increase later because the troponin levels will peak. So if we do serial sampling, later on we'll reach a sensitivity of 100%, at which point we can safely rule out the diagnosis of an acute MI. So we often use two troponin values. We do one when the patient first arrives and then we do another one at a time interval further down the line. I think looking at the literature, you'll obviously know a lot more about this than me because you've read it all. Well, the bits you haven't written, you've read. Some people seem to use a six hour window. Other people seem to use 10 hour, 12 hour windows. Is this just because they've chosen to make a compromise with how sensitive the test is? Or is it to do with when they're judging with pain and when the patient arrives? Why the different values? You know, it's really interesting to see how we arrived at these different values. Uh, in the UK, we start the clock when the patient's symptoms started. And I think that's different to the rest of the world, where they start the clock when the patient arrives in the emergency department, regardless of the time of symptom onset. And we could argue all day about whether patient stories are reliable and whether you can actually use that time of symptom onset to time your troponin test. But that's what we've been doing for years. When you look at the evidence behind those things, actually, it's relatively scant. When I looked for this, I found a paper in Academic Emergency Medicine from 1997 by Tucker, which did a great great study. They did serial troponin sampling for, I think, 24, 36 hours in patients with suspected acute MI. And it wasn't until about 12 hours after symptom onset that they found 100% or very close to 100% sensitivity. It's a brilliant piece of work. Actually, where the 12-hour value came from for us was part of the negotiation in terms of why we would implement a troponin cost. It was probably a bit more expensive than the cardiac enzymes that we were using before. But by bringing the rule out to 12 hours, patients could go home a lot sooner than they would have been able to go home using the traditional cardiac enzyme panel of CK, LDH and ALT, for example. So it's a little bit more arbitrary than you might think. And we're using that value related to pain onset. But in other countries, they may use a six hour value. But this is assuming that the patient's presenting a few hours after their pain started. Absolutely, and this is a really key point, because when you talk about doing a six-hour troponin, if you did it six hours after symptom onset, that's very different from doing it six hours after arrival, because patients will tend to arrive, on average, about four hours after the onset of the pain, in which case a six-hour troponin is actually 10 hours after symptom onset. If you do a six-hour troponin after symptom onset, you might lack the sensitivity and actually be missing some 
uh, some of the patients who'd go on to develop a late rise. And that really explains for me why we have some of these different values. I worked in a place before we moved to what we'll talk about in our next episode, the high sensitivity troponin, where we would do a 10 hour troponin. And I was thinking, but how come we're doing 10 hours and other people are doing six hours? When in actual fact, we were all doing 10 hours after symptom onset, bearing in mind it was four hours after the onset of pain that the patient arrived. It was just when they decided to start the clock. So actually everybody was doing the same thing. The key was not to then go back for the means of expediting patient journeys to six hours after symptom onset. In my head, I'd always wondered why we hadn't done that, but you've really cleared that up. So Rick, that's really a beginner's guide, I think, to the troponin, the molecule, where it comes from, how we measure it, why it's raised in renal failure, some of those other bits and pieces that people might have been asking themselves as they're doing these tests. Just the last thought, I guess, is that we seem to be doing troponins on an awful lot of people. I'm assuming that we can't just ignore the pretest probability. We have to still take into account the clinical picture. Absolutely, and that's a really key point, isn't it? When we're under pressure in the emergency department to meet process targets, tests are often requested on arrival, perhaps by a nurse or a support worker who hasn't taken a thorough history, or maybe even hasn't got the expertise to take a thorough history. Some of those patients who have troponin tests may have a very, very low pretest probability of disease, so low that we'd never even have considered the diagnosis of an acute myocardial infarction. It's really important to be a Bayesian thinker about this. So if you see a positive troponin in a patient with a very, very low pretest probability of disease, the post-test probability will also be low. For example, we take just the patients who have suspected cardiac chest pain. So these are people who have an appropriate troponin request. Uh, and we look at the positive predictive value of a positive troponin using, we're going to talk for now about a high sensitivity assay, but let's just for a moment, I know we're going to talk about that in more detail later on, a positive high sensitivity troponin, the post-test probability of an acute myocardial infarction is only 50%, and that's in patients who have suspected cardiac chest pain. The post-test probability is going to be far, far lower than that in patients who have pneumonia, chest infection, transient loss of consciousness. So it's really important to bear that in mind. Um, we'll really dilute the, val the value of this test if we use it indiscriminately. And taking it the other way about sensitivity, if you have a higher pretest probability, even with a sensitivity that's approaching 100% at 10, 12 hours, a negative test by itself at 10 hours, 12 hours, even with a high sensitivity, doesn't rule out disease. So we can't just do troponins on everybody, hoping that that clears us and tells us that they don't have illness. We still need to be clinicians, we need to be thinkers, we need to form that pretest probability. Absolutely, and that's another really important point for several reasons. One is that the patient may develop a late troponin rise, and if they've got a high pretest probability, if we're seeing ischemic ECG changes, high risk history, then we're going to be a bit more worried about it. Similarly, it's really important, I think, that we, that we touch on the diagnosis of unstable angina because that's a troponin negative state. These patients will never develop a rise and or fall of troponin because they don't have an acute myocardial infarction, but they still have ACS. Troponin can't rule that out. You've got to think, you've got to use your clinical judgment and the other clinical information that's presented to you in order to establish that diagnosis. That's really, we'll just reiterate that. Patients with unstable angina, they're not getting myocardial injury, myocardial infarction, so troponin isn't released into the blood, but it's still representing a disease state that we need to do something about. Absolutely, and those patients 
could well go on to develop a major adverse cardiac event in the near future unless we give them appropriate treatment. Rick, it's been great getting the basis of the troponin test from you in this episode. I know we're going to go on and talk more in our next episode about your perhaps greatest love, apart from your family, of high sensitivity troponin, and we're going to delve even deeper into that. But for now, we hope you've all got something from listening to this podcast. Please, obviously, we have Rick available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, to answer any questions you might have about troponin. Feel free to write comments on the blog post, email us. Rick will be only too happy to answer them. We hope this has been useful. We can't wait to speak to you again very soon, where we'll be exploring in even more depth the troponin molecule and high-sensitivity troponin. So from both of us for now, take care.